actually, bro. Um, so yeah, as I was saying, I'm, I'm connected with Khidr on uh, on our PCs here through this kind of new uh, software that I found for podcast recording. Ever since Zoom stopped the unlimited recording for two people, can you imagine that, bro? How uh, uh, that surely that's affected you as well. Like when you before Zoom was like, okay, if you have two people, it can be unlimited. If a third person comes in, then it gets capped. I'm like, come, my podcasts are always with two people, so I never have to buy premium Zoom. And now look what I have to do. I have to get this whole new software. Uh, SubhanAllah. You know what? It's actually funny because Riverside is one of the softwares I was looking at when I was um, uh, looking for like good podcasting software for um, IFG. So yeah. uh, let me know how it is. If, if it's really good, then I'll switch it as well. Because we, before that, we were using Zoom as well. Um, and for now, we've been sufficing with like Microsoft Teams. But, you know, yeah. alhamdulillah. Yeah, no, I think uh, it's the first time I'm using it. I'll see how it goes. I'm, I'm on the free version at the moment just to try it out. And um, if if I end up enjoying it, then I think I might I might take the premium option. Because it's, it's quite kind of good uh, features on here. Like, for example, um, what what's happening right now i'm not sure on your side but on my side your your camera is really really fuzzy but the, the the reason for that is because this is all live streamed but in the in the end version of the podcast all of uh, the highest quality will be uploaded to the cloud so actually the podcast is all being recorded locally on your end and locally on my end not through the live stream unlike zoom so with zoom it, yeah. you, you only get the live stream quality of the recording but with Riverside, it's actually recorded locally. So even if it looks bad right now, even if maybe for you, I look blurry. Um, but what's going to happen is at the end, it's all going to be high quality, inshallah. So anyway, I'll see how it goes to so see what this free version is like. At the moment, inshallah. it's only 720p anyway. So um, uh, you can only get 1080p and above on, on the full quality version. It's still decent, still decent though. Yeah, alhamdulillah. All right, let's, I mean, we've, we've begun anyway. I've started recording and we're on Instagram live, but let's do a formal introduction. So, assalamu alaikum everyone who's on Instagram. Uh, and uh, for those of you guys who are watching this later on my YouTube channel, then make sure you do follow me at Shoaib Muhammad on Instagram uh, so that you can join into these uh, conversations in the future uh, live and you can actually ask your questions live inshallah um so every time we do a podcast now we go live on our on, on my instagram and then it gets uploaded later and we are today with uh khidr who is also known as just another brother or maybe he's mainly known as just another brother and aka is khidr um and uh, and and he's been on the podcast before we've spoken to him about his uh, uh journey of fatherhood in terms of having twins and uh, i'm not sure at that time did you have your third one as well? Or were there only two? Yeah, yeah, I did have my third one, yeah. You did yeah, have your was, third one. He was yeah, a lot younger, about... a lot younger. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And we spoke about kind of being 25 years old, having three kids and how all of that uh, came about. And we kind of touched briefly on the whole uh, passion for seeking knowledge and the whole passion for um, books as well. And then recently, um, I think our mutual follower, I can't actually remember whether it was a brother or a sister or what their name was, but we had a mutual follower who um, came on my live at one point and said, you need to do a podcast with Khidr about books and Islamic books and parenting <laughs> books. And I was like, okay, we'll get it done. And then he came on, uh, I think he asked you a question through your um, stories or she asked the question and, and said, can you do a podcast um, with Shoaib? And uh, then we were just like, okay, we should, we should probably make this happen then. So we're making it happen. Alhamdulillah, we're here now, so it's a pleasure to be here again for a second time. So, uh, Jazakallah khair for having me. 
podcast I think I hope that uh, follower uh, we've, I've forgotten their name uh, is is here and sh just shout yourself out in the comments on Instagram um, and uh, yeah, for anybody who's on Instagram now, send your questions into the question box and uh, periodically I will be checking it throughout the conversation. Um, I don't have any particular questions uh, for this. I mean, I have a general topic, which is books. Um, so I suppose we can just kind of uh, firstly, I, I, you know, what? firstly, just let me know how are things going in terms of being a dad right now. What is going on? Well, you know, subhanAllah, I think like the most significant thing that's happening now, uh, and I think I told you about it, was that my kids are getting ready to go to a uh, big boy school. So yeah. moving out of nursery, now they're going to a, a bigger school um, reception. And uh, me and my, my wife, we went to the induction evening and it was just like, it was kind of, I don't know, it just felt weird because I'm not, I'm not an emotional person. I'm not someone that like, you know, gets teary eyed when I see like, you know, a sad scene in a movie or something like I'm just one of those guys that I'm just like okay just get on with it like you know move forward um, but when I was walking through the school I started having flashbacks of my own primary school experiences um, and then I was holding my kids my kids uh, hands as I was walking through and taking them to their new um, school and it was just a I was like holy crap like my kids are going to school now like um they're, they're so much older now and now they're at that age where they can be sassy and answer back and like when I'm like oh they're like what are you eating dad I'll be eating a chocolate or something and they'll be like can I have some and I'll be like no this is my chocolate and they're like <laughs> but why can't we have some we ate all of our lunch today so we deserve some dessert and I'm like oh you you use the word deserve like well, where are you learning these words from <laughs> but anyway yeah taking them to school it was just a it was just it dawned on me how much older they're getting and that for me was quite um quite a realization and i was like happy and a bit sad at the same time because you're like okay they're are, not they, babies are they anymore. starting in september you said yeah i believe they're starting in september but i think like all the you know the inset day where they start sh telling you like what the structure is going to be like who their teachers yeah. are and where you can buy uniform and all of that kind of stuff like we had a meeting about that so yeah Okay, wicked, alhamdulillah. Uh, yeah, you, you were telling me about that and I was, it was kind of off the back of like I was saying in my story the other day on Instagram, that I took my uh, boy to uh, a weekend Islamic school, like a madrasa basically, uh, locally in our area. And he's, he signed up to join in September um, and uh, it was kind of like just a trial day for him like I just had to go in suddenly because I kind of cover some some teachers when they're away and there was like a an emergency where there was no teacher so they just called me up and said come and I wasn't prepared to come in that day so I thought to myself maybe they would let um, Isa come in uh, because he signed up to go in September anyway so maybe he can just have a trial day so they said yeah bring him in and it was just that that same feeling that you had it's like oh my gosh he's becoming so big and this is all becoming real like I'm gonna have to send him to a school and he He's going to be learning from teachers it's like i remember what it was like to be uh, in nursery and he's got do, um do do your do your older boys currently go to nursery yes so are, they, are yeah. they transitioning yeah they are they are but nursery okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. the nursery is much smaller and it's like i i never felt it as much when they went to nursery because uh i don't know it's it it's just different vibes when i went to the primary school you see the whole playground all these kids running around and you're like whoa this yeah. is just different yeah, yeah, yeah. So their their nursery is not connected to the primary school. It's like a separate nursery. Yeah, this this one's a different nursery that um, uh, I think 
my wife chose it for I don't know for what reason, but she chose it, and uh, <laughs> it was it was slightly different, and I think more closer to our house, so we went for yeah. that one. Okay, interesting. Um, yeah, yeah. My uh, Isa currently goes to goes to nursery. I got Sarah is a bit young; she's about two years old. So I think the minimum age. Actually, you can attend when you're two years old, but uh you don't get the free 15 yeah. hours whatever that the government gives you and yeah. i'm not trying to pay you know so uh, <laughs> I, I, i'll keep her Same. at home until she gets the free 15 hours so asa goes on that that free one he gets three hours every single day monday to friday uh, and he goes he goes to a nursery down the road um and we we haven't started applying for school yet i mean he's still he's still got another year nursery to go i think your boys are one year older um uh but he's still got another year nursery uh, and we're we're obviously on the fence when it comes to school. Where we're kind of thinking whether uh, we're more. We're, I don't know. We go back and forth. So saying on the fence, we go back and forth. Um, so at the moment, we're more towards the homeschooling side of things. But there are times when we're like more towards the schooling side of things. And there's so many like pros and cons and whatnot. What what made you decide that? Okay, I think this is the right decision at the moment for my kids to now join school. I think it was a difficult one for us in the sense that, of course, where we understand that we're very cognizant of the, let's just say, the fit and in 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 normal schools, and as well as that, that homeschooling has huge benefits in the sense that, um, you know, children tend to learn faster in homeschooling, and there's there's lots of educational benefits there. But it's also that you know, for my wife, I feel like homeschooling was a bit hard for her, um, and it was something that though she did want to, she did try try to trial it out. It was something that she felt like she couldn't carry on long term so we felt like okay while we're here it doesn't make sense to hold the kids back from school let's let them go but um, we're strong believers in also having that strong islamic environment at home because if you have that tarbiya at home that strong element like me and my wife were both very involved with the uh, children's upbringing so like i will for example uh, tell them like you know stories of the prophets before bed uh, my wife will be teaching them like uh, like their alif batas their qaeda and all of that kind of stuff um, and you know we we always try to teach them little things while we're you know getting on with the day like we'll be leaving for a journey and we'll be like okay boys let's do some dhikr while we're in the car together and we'll all loudly do dhikr together just so that the kids are consciously aware that you know dhikr is a thing in our house so what i'm trying to say is that we have a very we try to keep a very islamic environment in the house so that even if they don't get that at school or are faced with ideologies that are counter to that we hope that by nurturing a good relationship with our children that one they can talk to us about anything and two their islamic identity will be strong and they'll be confident in that one incident that we had was my son uh one of the twins his name is Noh, um and a lot of non-Muslims understandably find it more difficult to say that name compared to my other son, Ibrahim. So um, in the beginning, we did kind of like feel a bit shy and we said, oh, you can call him Noah. But then afterwards we were like, no, actually, this is his name. If you can say Arnold Schwarzenegger, then you can definitely say no, right? <laughs> you can learn how to do that because that's his name. So um, we, we put a heart, we put our foot down on it. I'm a bit more relaxed than my wife, but my wife's like heavily like, no. That's his name. We're going to be confident in his name and he's going to be confident in his name. So like, yeah, that's that's what we're trying to do, essentially. Yeah, mashallah, that, that makes a lot of sense. And 
I kind of always refer back to this point um, that Sheikh Abu Isa, Ni'matullah, what he said uh, is basically in, in one of his courses where he was talking about uh, relationships and he came to the point of the relationship between you and your child. And obviously one of the key aspects to that is making sure that your child is, uh, you're giving your child the best education possible, right? And so in that whole conversation, it was like, well, what is the best education possible? Is it homeschooling? Is it public schooling? Is it boarding school? Is it an Islamic school? Like, wh what is it? And um, he basically said, look, no matter what it is that you're going to send them to, uh, your fear level has to be at level 10 out of 10 for any any place that you send them to. The only thing that he said is definitely don't send them boarding school. He said, like, that's that's the worst thing that you could possibly ever do as a parent. Um, but he's basically saying, look, no matter what you do, whether they're, they're homeschooled, they're Islamic school, they're public school, you need to make sure that your fear level is 10. What he means by that is you need to make sure that you are in con you're in control as much as you can of the factors uh, that are influencing them. So there might be certain factors when they're at school you cannot control, but there are other things that you can. And those things can be, you know, when your child comes home, you're checking what did they learn? What did they like today? What did they dislike today? Um, you know, what was going on at school? And if they're at home school, then obviously you have a lot more control, but you still shouldn't kind of... Um, let the let, you know let the ball drop and and think that because they're in your company therefore everything is going to go smoothly and they're going to be able to learn everything uh, amazingly no matter how much i do for them because they're with me you know that that's it they're gonna they're gonna come out on top and then when it comes to islamic school you can't just say well they're in an islamic environment so therefore i don't really need to question them so hard about what they've been doing and what they've been learning and who their friends are surely it's gonna be uh, a nice environment he's basically saying no don't slip up in any of these places. You have to always be at level 10 for, for everything. Um, and and that's, that, that just means that there is no one right way of doing it. Like for, for different families, it's going to be different. Like for some, schooling is going to be necessary. For some, they're going to be able to do the homeschooling. For some, uh, they want to send their kids to an Islamic school. And uh, as long as you're on fair level 10, no matter where they go, each of them, if we had, th you know, three kids here and they all went to those three different things homeschooling Islamic school and public school as long as their parents were really on top of them i'm sure that all those kids with the um uh, uh, permission of allah they will all turn out to be excellent uh, uh, people of character and have very good intelligence and be on it with their deen as well uh, you just have to make sure that you are as a parent doing those things properly and you're not letting i completely drop. agree with that and i think me and my wife we both come from very different backgrounds in the sense that she came from a very practicing family um, that were very on the ball with education more i'd say um, in terms of like you know the islamic element of it so she went to an islamic school and she bought all those experiences my family is a very traditional pakistani family you know first generation immigrants so they just kind of like just put me in the the local school and they were like oh yeah it's a good school and then they just kind of left me to it um and then we both had our separate experiences so that when we did start discussing our children's schooling that like i was in the very beginning i was like you know uh very heavily pro-islamic school like they're the best things like what could go wrong in an islamic school and then my wife would be like well i went to an all-girls islamic school and here's a thousand things that were really bad about it and i was like well public school might be better and then I would say my public school experiences and she'd be like, wow, public school sounds terrible. <laughs> then we'd have to kind of like <laughs> figure out how are we going to do this? But I agree with you. There's, there's no right or wrong way. And I think 
and I'm going to give a shout out to a book here since we decided to speak about books in this live. Um, like the number one parenting book that uh, I read, and I haven't read that many, but um, it's one that I actually found hugely beneficial. I don't know if this is going to come up reversed or what, but it's Children Around the Prophet by, um, by Hisham al-Awadi. Um, and it's, it's a really good book in the sense that it really puts into light from the from the seerah, how the Prophet ﷺ interacted with children and how he looked after them, how he raised them and, uh, you know, how did he discipline them? How did he talk to them about difficult topics? Um, and I right, we're back. So um, you are basically speaking about this book. You showed us children around the Prophet. Um, so carry on with where you are. Yeah, sure. That. So, I mean... I'll, I'll start by saying that my general thoughts on parenting books is the very similar to my thoughts on books about swimming, um, in which that you can kind of gain the usul, the fundamentals or the principles of parenting from them. But I don't believe any book can teach you how to parent because every child is so different that and, and people with multiple children, like, you know, I know you have two children, I have three. We know that, okay, this one tactic that I'm going to do is going to work with this child, but it's not going to work with that child. So no book can kind of summarize all of that for you. When I first had um, twins, I was like in panic mode, trying to read every article book to help me. But then someone just said to me, look, just take it slow. And it's like swimming. You have to just get in the water and then slowly start learning how to paddle. Yeah, sure. Use some of the techniques you learn about and hear about, but you're going to ultimately find your own way. You're going to find your own uh, stroke. Yeah, still you're still here. here. Okay, still yeah, here. I was just seeing multiple colors and I was going, whoa, what's going on there? Uh, yeah, it's just adjusting it. No worries. And I should be back. There we go. Now. So, um, yeah, so like I feel like parenting books overall, I haven't got a large collection of them. But this one, Children Around the Prophet, I just believe is such a good book. It's nice and short. Doesn't take long at all. I think it's a uh, hundred and what 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 types of things is it covering? Is it is it going through stories of the young people that were around the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam, or is it more about how he interacted with them? So it, it's about both, really. So it the well, I'll okay. I'll read out the contents page. So the first thing is, um, you know, yeah. uh, the introduction, of course, uh, where the author talks about the concept. Then you've got Muhammad and sallallahu alaihi wasallam and the children. Then uh, how he how he uh, developed emotions, how he focused on children developing emotions, how he built their faith, how he encouraged them to worship, how he helped develop a moral compass within them, how he helped them discipline sexual desires, and how he developed a upstanding social character. So it's like wow, certain. Comes quite yeah, well. I mean, it's each section is quite short. But because what they'll do is they'll, they'll okay. quote hadith of the instances and the author will then explain, um, you know, like the, what you could call the psychological tricks behind this or how he, not tricks, but methods sure. um, behind how he accomplished these things. And essentially it's, it's a good. So, so it brings in like modern psychology into it. Slightly, well. slightly. The author isn't a psychologist himself. He's a, he's a professor okay. of um, history, I think, and politics. But he okay. seems to have an interest with okay. this, like, practical, lived experience of the Sira in day-to-day -day life. Sure, sure. 
Okay, that's that's really good. I haven't I haven't actually picked up or, or seen that. This is the first time I, I've heard of something like that, but it's first time I'm really seeing it, and that's good to know. I think I definitely need to give it a read, especially you said it's quite short, so um, you know that makes it more encouraging. I do I do like to read books, but obviously it's encouraging when you can get through something quite quickly. Um, okay, that's good. That's good. I think um, that's definitely one to look out for. Uh, some of the uh, books that are on my list, um, one of them definitely, I'm not sure if you read it, is uh, Stephen Covey's Seven uh, Habits for Effective Families. So he's got his famous one, which is Seven Habits of Successful People, right? And that's that's kind of quite well known, um, you know, and it, and it yeah, has those seven habits. But what he does is that he takes those same seven habits, like begin with the end in mind and, and all the different seven ones that he has, and he applies them to the family life. And he himself, he's using his own example. So he himself as a father to his children. Um, and uh, he, he, he basically shows you how those same habits of being a successful person can actually apply in a family setting. Um, and the way that he starts the book actually is that he gives like a metaphor of uh, traveling on a plane with your family and you have uh, various things to help you in this journey basically so you know being like a parent you're like the pilot of the aeroplane um, you have a compass that's supposed to direct you and you have to have a compass that works and so like his kind of grounding compass he actually brings a lot of faith because him and his family are quite devout christians so he he, he talks a lot about having grounding within god uh, having god within the household um, uh, talking about how prayer is something which uh, helps families to kind of mesh together um, and having sort of a moral compass as well basically um, by, by using uh, your faith as, as, as something which you can sort of guide your children with and guide, guide your, your, your family vision with and that the, the next thing he basically goes into is using the same metaphor, metaphor of a plane is knowing your destination so, so he kind of goes into the whole aspect of having a vision for your whole family and then throughout the book he basically breaks that down and shows you how you can apply that vision when it comes to different aspects of your family so how do you get your children involved in that vision uh, how do you make sure uh, the vision that you want for your family your children also see that as as their vision too how um you you get their insights into their vision as well um and how what are the tips behind actually practically carrying that vision out and then he goes through many different uh, practical examples of what he did with his children actually uh, his children because by the time he's writing this they're adults so he actually gets them to write passages in the book and explains how uh, what his father did actually did work for them as well so it's not just him preaching and saying this is what you should do to your children actually his children come and say this is what our father did and it did work in this kind of way um, so that is it's quite interesting in that way. And then he also, at the end of each chapter, um, what he does is he gives like an action plan to, to the parents who are reading this. So he says, okay, at the end of this chapter, now that you've learned this habit, uh, these are the ways that you can implement it. And he basically has like an action plan for you as parents and then an action plan for your children as well. Um, and I read, I mean, uh, so what I did is I listened to this. Uh, so I listened to the audio version of it and then I bought the book because I realized that all of the different chapter endings with the action plans, I need them. 
so I bought the book as well so I could go through the action plans the only thing uh, left to do is actually do the action <laughs> plans so I've, I've, I've read through all of it and uh, I've, I've talked to, uh, with my wife on how we can do these things but we haven't actually started implementing some of these things um, and that kind of brings me on to another point about the book is that I think it's much more aimed at those who have children a bit older than our children um, uh, I think definitely as a new parent you can benefit because it will give you a good grounding and an insight of where you should be going with your family but I think in terms of the actions that are being taken it seems like it's written for those who have kind of maybe children who are eight nine and then going into being teenagers as fair, well fair. it actually sounds like a really good book of course like like you said I've heard of his famous book I just I just realized that my mic was muted on Instagram so everything I just said nobody all oh, my days <laughs> <laughs> but don't don't worry though they can you guys can watch back onto the podcast hear what i just said and no one said on the no one said on the instagram thing <laughs> oh subhanallah but no it, it sounds like a good book like i'd be interested in checking it out i've i've heard of the main book seven habits of highly effective people but the family one um I've not heard that so it might be an interesting one but yeah I, I i have noticed that a lot of parenting books specifically when it comes to um like you know character building and stuff really start from like the seven eight age kind of mark this is my this is my sense i haven't looked at too many um and, but i i feel like that's because that that's the key developmental age of a child like younger younger children of course like at our age at the children that we have they're of course developing very fast but they're still learning like the basics of speaking and running and physical coordination and reason and stuff like this but when they get to like eight nine years old i feel like it's the next step up from that where they're developing their personalities their likes and dislikes that kind of stuff uh somebody's just now said let me unmute it this time. So somebody has now just said that we, we can't hear you. So finally, they uh, they, come, they came back to us. Uh, mashallah. Yeah, sorry about that, guys. But you can watch back the episode, inshallah. Um, yeah, the point that you're saying about it is usually targeted towards older children. Yeah. Um, I think it's, you know, that's something that I did definitely notice when my wife was pregnant. Uh, I definitely noticed that there wasn't a lot of material, material out there for uh, dads who are like, just about to have their babies or have just had their babies basically um and then there's quite a lot of material at that level for mothers and i think it makes sense i think it's natural for for the market to go that way because uh when when the baby is in the womb obviously the mother wants to know what's going on with her body and what she can do to kind of help this whole pregnancy process and for the dad it's more just about or the husband is just supporting the wife making sure that the wife is experiencing as much comfort as can happen in a pregnancy uh and 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 you're there to kind of uh play that supporting role uh, and then when the baby is born the baby is going to be more likely to be attached to the mother because maybe to do with breastfeeding and just naturally that the baby knows that uh, uh that's their mother they were obviously in the womb for nine months and so kind of that that whole the, the first couple of weeks or months it's a lot more about that kind of mother baby interaction and so for the dad again it's more about support it's more about okay if the baby needs a change change him if the baby needs some if it's not breastfed but it's bottle fed then get the bottle ready you know uh, things like that um so it kind of makes sense why the market goes that way where you have the parenting books for the mothers are a lot more 
uh, focused on kind of the, the immediate uh, birth side and the pregnancy side. And when it comes in for the fathers, it's more so kind of down, down the road. Uh, but even when I say that, more for the fathers, I think every time I read a parenting book, so like, for example, another one that I uh, read or listened to recently um, was, I always forget the name of it because the name is so long. It's something like uh, the book that you wish your parents had read and that your children would uh, uh, love that you had read it, something like that. It's a long title. Anyway, um, even that one and, and, and some other ones as well, every time I read it, I kind of feel like the author is just addressing mothers and never, it doesn't, doesn't really address fathers. And that's the, uh, maybe, I don't know, it's just me that like I, I feel like that, but I, I genuinely think that most parenting books are targeted towards the mothers and not targeted towards the fathers. And you can just kind of tell it from the language and sort of the narrative and the examples and case studies that are included in the book. It's more so about what mothers are doing with their children rather than what fathers are doing. And there's a handful of uh, father books out there that this specifically this is being written for a dad to read and a dad to understand how he should uh, 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 you know, parent his child. Um, one of the ones that I bought when my wife was pregnant that was specifically for dads was, I think it's called The Expectant Dad. And uh, it basically, I, I wouldn't really recommend it. I don't, I don't think it was a great purchase, but um, it, it was nice to see that there was something there. And I think it's one of the like top ones on Amazon, which is probably why I bought it. I was just search for like dad, um, kind of, you know, I'm, I'm a husband, my wife is pregnant. What do I read? And then uh, uh, that kind of just came up on Amazon. It has some decent stuff. Like it tells you roughly in each trimester what are the changes your wife is going to be going through so you're a bit more aware about it it also gives you i think it's it, the authors from the uk because it tells you about the types of maybe uh admin government stuff you need to do when the baby's born so in terms of getting the birth certificates getting the passports maybe benefits if if you're eligible for those so it does have some gems in there that maybe you wouldn't really think about straight away and so reading the book it's like Oh, actually, that's that's pretty useful information. But generally, it wasn't like a great read. Um, uh, I think it was, it, you know, I don't think there was like amazing value in it, but it's good. But my point being is it's good to see that there's something there for an expectant dad. Um, the other one that I haven't read yet, but I've heard a lot about it. And another Muslim dad actually recommended me to get it, which is called uh, the... It just left my mind. So, so uh, the dad survival book or dad survival kit or something like that. Basically, it's written by an ex-army soldier or navy. I don't know what, but what, an ex sort of one of those things, right? <laughs> and uh, he's become a dad and he's sort of, oh, it's called Commando Dad. Commando Dad. That's what it's called, Commando Dad just came into my mind so basically what he does from his perspective he basically brings the lessons that he's learned in the military to being a father um and uh, and, and he has a series of books so he has one which is like before the baby's born and then when the baby is born and then uh toddlers and then and older than that as well i haven't read any of them but i have looked at the website and it and the content pages are available on the website and it looks really really good um and I, I can imagine that there will probably be a lot of good content in there um but i just need to get my hands on it really and it kind of inspired me to possibly write something myself as well when i started looking through the contents page i was like 
why couldn't a Muslim dad, from his own perspective, say that, okay, as a Muslim father, when your wife is pregnant, you could be doing this, and when the baby's born, you could be doing this. So, um, yeah, that, that's, that's another one that comes to mind. But again, like, there's only a few father ones out there. Have you, have you come across anything that's like specifically related to fathers? I, you know what? I, I actually haven't. Um, and there was times when I was like such in the beginning, when I first had my twins, like I was searching for books on this issue, uh, on like, you know, what to do as a dad. Um, and I didn't find that much, but then I resort, I resorted to, um, reading a lot of articles online. Um, and generally mm. the vast majority of articles were written by non-Muslims. So that, that adds like another dimension of stuff that you have to then like unpack to see if like, okay, is that suitable? Cause there'll be certain things that I'll look at and be like, look, okay, that in a Muslim household just wouldn't fly. Like, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do this. Um, so you have to consciously be reading it in a very critical light, which is another extra layer of thinking that would be unnecessary if you, if you had it, if you had materials that were produced by uh, by Muslim dads for Muslim dads. Um, so, but I agree, like, I think there's a lot less out there, but from what I've seen now, there is a rise of like dad movements, I would call them, or father movements where the, the right of uh, fathers is being spoken about, whether it's in court cases or such. There's the, the right of fathers in terms of like, you know, parental responsibility is being reaffirmed because for a while we had you know, after the, what do they call it? The sexual revolutions of the sixties, like literally there was a, like a boom in like single mothers and all sorts because of the kind of fawahish that was going on. Um, and then as a result of that, a lot of children for like, you know, a few decades were raised without, without, uh, one parent or, uh, the, or sometimes in ca some cases, both parents. And that led to like a whole load of other issues. So now this whole movement of like affirming that, you know, fathers are important for a child's development is is really being focused on and now we're seeing like you know people such as yourself and other people are becoming strong advocates for this um and i think we're seeing this in the non-muslim space as well with all the dad pages that i follow and i'm constantly sharing memes from them all the time because they make me laugh i, lo I love the i love the memes that you <laughs> because i feel like they're so relatable like all dads like can sit back and be like yep that's been me at one point or another um, and, and this movement, I think it's a, it's a force for good. Yeah, I know a hundred percent. Um, I, I, I've, I've come across that a lot as well. And I think, uh, there's going to be a, a rise in material for, for dads, like, like books. And, uh, like you mentioned, there's already loads of articles out there. So that, that's a good point that there, there's a, a plethora of, uh, you know, if you go to any of these pages, most of them have websites and most of them have a kind of blog post on their websites and you find a lot of information uh, for dads on there. But I think now it's going to start materializing into kind of having a more secure market in terms of actual books, academic books as well. Um, and sort of just yeah general communities as well and i and i think that's probably i'm i'm coming in at that point where it's starting to to rise up so kind of hopefully dadhood gets onto that wave and we have muslim fathers who also uh want to i mean that that's the aim behind dadhood is to make sure that muslim fathers uh, see this responsibility as as something serious and that they actually want to do it properly and so therefore here is 
you know, a bank of material for you, whether you're going to listen to podcasts, whether you want to watch some YouTube videos, and then eventually we'll try and, you know, write articles, maybe get some books published, whatever it is. But hopefully for this, this whole thing of not just dadhood, but the whole dad movie you're talking about to grow so that we do have a lot more of this kind of material for fathers. And I think it's not, not so um, relevant whether or not fathers um, feel the need to read these things or, or, or watch these things. I think it's more so about making noise that uh, this market or this movement of fathers being involved in their children is something normalized. And so whether, whether the fathers like kind of take their time out to read these things or listen to these things, that's a big bonus. And that's going to give them a big advantage when it comes to interacting with their children, actually gaining that knowledge and then implementing it. But I think kind of the, the, the overall thing is for the, the whole message in society to basically be like being an involved father is something good and is something that is normalized and is something that should be encouraged. And, uh, and I think alongside that, it, it's probably going to, Alongside that is going to come the whole kind of masculinity sort of drive that is going on as well. The the kind of reaction to the whole um, femininity and effeminate kind of uh, movements that are making men feel like um, they can't speak up about their own uh, natural fitra uh, masculinity. The, the whole opposite angle is going to come where there's going to be, and it's already started, there's a lot of all of these kind of red pill alpha male kind of toxic masculinity movements uh and i think that's coming like what's coming alongside that is as fathers you know let us be involved in with our children and that's a good thing and so we need to find that balance basically like as the movement grows the balance needs to come in where um i think so i was on a live yesterday and and, and i mentioned this right so with um uh, live updates from Syria. Shout out to your your peoples. Um, uh, I, you were there just a couple of months ago, um, and uh, I, I was there. We were basically talking about this point, and my my kind of overall message was: the more we define these things in very specific definitions. So if we say a woman is this, the more people on the other end are gonna say a man is not those things. And that's what's going to create those extremes of toxic femininity and toxic masculinity. So I think a similar thing applies here. Like the more that we say a mother does these specific things and a father does these specific things, the more you're going to get a complete divide between the mothers and the fathers. And that kind of father movement is going to be, rather than being a good movement, which is encouraging fathers to be involved in their children's lives and, and, and things like this, it's going to become a movement where it's like, we, we, we want to define ourselves against what the role of the mothers is. And, and, and then this is the role of the fathers. And it's going to create another sort of uh, identity and that people are going to then flock to that with their own kind of identity politics and say, you know, create a whole movement behind fathers are this and mothers are this and men are this and women are this and uh, and obviously islam teaches us that there is no like one clear-cut way of doing things islam is quite uh, uh um flexible in 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 looking at the culture looking at um uh, the role and responsibility of males and females it has that 
but it's not so clearly defined that okay a woman can only do this for a child and therefore a man can't do it like a woman can only give emotional nurturing to a child and therefore a man can't do it actually islam has space for the man and the woman to give tarbiyah to their children and there are some things which are reserved for women and some things which are reserved for men in the deen and i think we need to make sure that we are always reminding, reminding ourselves that we don't we don't we don't need to be closed off in a certain box uh, as fathers, you know, no matter if we have these kind of amazing father movements, we don't have to just align ourselves to that and say that that is exactly what a father is. Like we need to be open as, especially as Muslim fathers to understand that it's on a much more broader spectrum. And the main th message is less normalized that fathers can be part of that spectrum. Basically, I think I went on a big rant across many, many different things there Khidr, you need to draw me in so, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm no i, I agree with much of what you said i think when it comes to masculinity look what happens is people have this tendency and i'm not sure what it is but it's with it's a psychological thing that we want to put things in categories we want to find neat little boxes to put everything in and say okay this goes in that box that goes in this box and and the more you do that the less yeah. you allow overlap like, for example, and I talk about this when it comes to mm. um, Islamic studies and when it comes to looking at things like the madahib, um, when you look at issues of aqidah and uh, fiqh and all these other differences, the more you study them, the more you realize that it's not black and white. They're not, there's gray areas. Like, when I look at all these sects of Islam that these scholars bring up, people make it out like, okay, there's the reds, the blues, the yellows, the oranges, uh, the the purples, and so on and so forth. I say no. These sects are a they're a giant part of a color wheel. They blend into each other, and there's spect there's spectrums of opinions across loads of things. And that's how we should look at life in in general. When it comes to what is a man and what is a woman, I see it like yeah. There's certain things that you could put as like guidelines and have been defined to an extent. Like even the man being the provider, Allah has said that in the Quran, but nowhere does it say that a woman can't provide as well. Like there's, there's, there's a spectrum of opinion yeah. on loads of these things. And same is with the, with like the idea of what is a man and what is a woman. You look at, there's certain things that are biological and defined by nature. You can't like, and those things will have their own fiqh rules, like hijab, for example. The, the rulings for men and women are completely different. Same with inheritance, because it's based on your gender. But with society now, what we've got is an erosion of any lack, any, any morality. There is no objective morality anymore. Everything's subjective. Therefore, it can be changed. So the idea of gender in itself is being questioned. And when you question those kind of things, you're, you've got one end trying to say everything's part of the same thing. So there is no gender. It's just all one big blue. Everyone's just blue. And then you've got the other other end saying that there are only two colors, which is red and blue, and they will never, ever mix. And because of that, you've got these qualities that yeah. you're they, by definition are saying can't overlap. So I remember when I picked up a book about what does it mean to uh, mean to be a man in Islam? I forgot what what the title was, but it was like Muruwa or something like that or masculinity in Islam, something like that. All the stuff that they listed, I was like, yeah, but a woman can do that too. It was like, a man is generous. I'm like, what? Yeah. So women are stingy? <laughs> like, I'm like, it, it, the world exactly, doesn't work yeah. in binaries and people shouldn't see it that way. And I think with couples, especially in the modern world, 
um, you have to look at your own situation. The, you have to look at the orf of the people of the time. Mm. So what, a man and woman and what their gender roles might be in, in the UK will be very different to a man and woman and their gender roles in, say, India or Saudi Arabia or in, um, I don't know, Uzbekistan. Like the, the roles will vary greatly depending on what society considers the norm. And, and that will play a big part of it. So yeah. I think people, people just like binaries um, and, and they oversimplify things and that's not right. Uh, so what, what, what do you, how do you think that will affect um, fathers and mothers? Like, do, do, do you see that this is, this is also creeped into that space where fathers feel like they should only do this specific thing as a father and mothers feel like this is what a mother does and uh, they're starting to create these um, boxes for themselves and they're not allowing for overlap. Where, I, I where, where like, do you think you that's know, that happening definitely when it comes to parenting? Happening. I literally watched this clip on TikTok the other day by uh, the world's favourite Red Hill dude, Andrew Tate, um, who, is, uh, who basically said that <laughs> fathers shouldn't be second mothers to their kids. And I looked at that and I was like, what? He was like, uh, a father shouldn't be there all the time for his ch children. That's what the mother's for. He, he said something along the lines of, and I'm, I'm sure you can find the clip online, but he said something along the lines of fathers need to be go going out there and working or doing whatever. They were never around anyway. Dads always historically have been at war or been, you know, on journeys far away in different lands trading and they'd come back with money and they would provide for the family. He's like, that's all the father is. And I was like, mm, yes and no, but that, that, that by necessity, that doesn't mean that a, a father's not there. But what we've got now is like, you've got these advocates um, pretty much saying that, okay, men are this. And by definition, when you say men are this, you mean fathers are this as well. Um, and when you're saying that, you're basically saying to, uh, yeah. to a person how they're supposed to parent. And inadvertently, you're saying mothers are not this, like you said. Um, and therefore you're saying mother's roles are restricted and defined only according to their children and they have no life outside of that. And believe me, I've seen mothers who have, um, you know, traditionally in the Pakistani culture, it's like, you know, your mother, the mother lives for her children. She doesn't have hobbies. She doesn't have friends. She doesn't have anything. She has her children and then she has her family that she'll also be looking after and whatever, but that, but that's it. And then with the moment the children fly yeah. out of the nest, the mothers are lost or like they feel like their child has been stolen for them. So they have a tug of war with the, with the, the child or their, their, their wife or whatever, because she feels like their son's been stolen. Um, and they feel the need of getting more involved in their relationship because all her life, she, her, her life has revolved around her son or her daughter. And now she needs to be part of that relationship as well. So I feel like what I'm trying to say is that it's definitely creeped in. Um, and it's affected the way that people have viewed lives, their, their entire lives. So you've got mothers that have not built their own personalities. They've not focused on their own selves, self-care and their hobbies and all of that kind of stuff because they've lived for their children. But naturally, children move away and fly out the nest. So then what does a mother do? Similarly, you have fathers that have been completely neglectful 
of their children and don't even give a second thought about children. They're like, oh, the child's got their mother. I don't need to be there. I can go out with my friends until 2 a.m., 3 a.m. When I hear like people say that to me, I say like, no, as a dad, you can't be out until 3 a.m. You're a family man now. And I'm saying, not saying that that can't happen on occasion. Of course it can, you know, but but it shouldn't be the norm because you, you should be there for your children. You should be there at dinner time when everyone's having their food, you know, you ask your children how they're doing, um, you know, play with them a little bit, all of that kind of stuff. And I feel like putting people into blacks and whites has just further exacerbated the issue and made it a lot worse. Yeah, 100% bro. Uh, I don't think I could agree with you anymore on that. Um, but I guess that, that that begs the question then, are we contributing to the issue by talking about it then? So the more that you talk about, uh, why, why does my camera do this? I think I need to check the settings. It has a, maybe an auto shut fu function or something like that. Um, so, um, but I'll leave it for today. Uh, Heather, you're, you're kind of, you know, although I love you so much, yeah, you're, you're kind of being used as a guinea pig today for me to test out some of these new uh, goodies that I have. You know, I have, I have a new uh, system of connecting my camera to my laptop. I have a new software that I'm recording with on Riverside. So you are, you know, maybe you'll get the reward. If I get this all right, and, and I carry on and the podcast become amazing and you're the first one to help me with that. Inshallah, you get the reward of everything that comes after that. So don't feel so bad about being a guinea pig, okay? <laughs> um, so what I was saying is that are we contributing to the issue by, by speaking about this, right? So the more that we speak about masculinity, even though we're speaking about from the angle of, guys, be careful, there's no clear definition of these things and don't, don't put yourself into a box. Uh, the more we speak about these kind of things, do you think actually where we're contributing to it? Because at the end of the day, uh, you know, the, you know, it, it, the less you speak about it, the, the more people should then just assume the natural aspect of it rather than having to uh, be bombarded with articles or podcasts that think, tell you what it should be. I think that would what it be, be the wrong call. And the reason that I say that is by being quiet, what you allow, especially being in, in a non-Muslim country where gender discourse is at its height right now, or it's even maybe not, maybe it's not at its height, maybe it's going to grow further. But by being quiet, you're allowing the dominant voices to uh, dominate the conversation. And when that happens, that influences policy um, and that will influence everything from which bathrooms uh, schools have that your children will be attending. You know, there was a story the other day of like, you know, I don't know if this was recent or a really old story, but it was uh, a child, uh, a, a small girl got raped in a school bathroom because it was a mixed bathroom. And the, uh, you know, attacker did, you know, what he did. And the, the dad couldn't do anything about it. I think the dad got arrested for trying to, wanting to find the attacker and beat him up. Um, so, my, my whole point is if Muslims stay quiet on this stuff, then ultimately we're going to have to surrender ourselves to gender discourse and whatever that means. But at the same time, we need to make sure that our positions are well understood. What often happens is that Muslims like to side, pick a side rather than create their own side. They don't realize Islam has its own 
dimensions, its own framework for viewing these things. Muslims like to think of things in a simplistic fashion as left or right. Okay, we're not going to side with the left, therefore we should go side with the right. The right who are like, you know, these staunch conservative Christians who, who want, you know, these norms and stuff. But they don't realize that these same people generally don't like Muslims. They, they, they like Christianity and their own norms. So when you come <laughs> to them, they're going to have their own issues with you. Um, and when you go to the left, they're going to have their own issues too. So I feel like Muslims need to be educated on this. We need the right voices saying the right things and having proper structured arguments about it. So that next time and the next time a red-pilled Muslim dude comes into uh, your DMs, Shoaib, and says to you that our fathers don't need to be uh, at home, you have an Islamic framework to literally shut the guy down straight away. Um, and that's what's important. I feel like yeah. many of our yeah. imams, many of our scholars, they don't engage with these subjects either, or they t have a very simplistic notion of it, or they have a uh, immigrant notion of it where they're bringing ideas from their culture back home to this country, to, to the West. And that only harms the whole conversation because they, will, they are taken as authorities and then people, when they go to them, especially like women, when they go and say, oh yeah, my husband's beating me or he's doing this. And they say, oh, just, just have sabr, just don't worry about it. It's all good. Have sabr, Allah will reward you for it. Just yeah. take the beats. It's like, if a wife was beating a husband, you would tell the husband to divorce the wife. But, you know, it's like these simplistic notions are carried on into okay. parenting as well. And I've seen it before in multiple issues. I've seen it in mm. race issues where big scholars, scholars who are like head of like seminaries, like saying like things that are considered very, very racist and racist in the Islamic way that the Prophet ﷺ would oppose what they're saying. Um, but I've, I've seen that. I've seen like, you know, uh, clear, clear misogyny um, for what it's worth and, and other things as well. So I think that our imams and our scholars need to be educated on this discourse so that they can lead with the right framework. And Alhamdulillah, I think, you know, there are organizations out there that are trying to do this. You know, I, I know Muslim Council of Britain and the British Board of Imams and Scholars are, are trying their best to engage with these topics in a constructive way. But I, I think we have a long way to go before uh, that education becomes the norm. Mm. Uh, you, you made a post recently uh, about generational trauma that I found quite inter interesting. And I think it relates to, to, to what you're saying um, about some of these things that car get carried on in, into parenting. Because if the norm in society is that this is how men and women should be uh, without looking at it holistically, um, then you, that's obviously going to affect your parenting. And if your parent is, is going to be messed up, then you're going to pass that down to your children. So essentially, uh, that, that what we're talking about can, can become a form of a new form of generational trauma, which is not understanding what a father and mother should do, not understanding how a, a male and a female um, should, 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 should be in, in society. So uh, do you want to just expand on, on the post that you were making? Uh, it doesn't have to be in relation to this conversation, but just it, it, I, I found it quite interesting. I know we're digressing away from the book subject and we'll, we'll come back to it in a second, but yeah, sure. it just and, came to my um, mind. And I thought, let, let's where that came it, from was me just simply observing, like my mom's a psych, she's got a master's in psychology and child development. Um, and that, that was her background. So, 
Um, I've always been fascinated by psychology. I'm, I'm, I love to figure out how people think. Um, so I always find it interesting to observe people. And one of the things that I've observed is looking at across family and friends and stuff. I've seen how, how decisions made by great grandparents or grandparents have led to certain characteristics being passed on to their children and then those exact characteristics being passed on to yeah. the children below them and one example of this i'll put out is for example like i know someone who has constantly from their parents was fat shamed a lot like you know because in asian families like it's a it's a big thing like you know oh especially mm. for a girl if you're too big like they're going to tell you that or even if you're slightly big whatever they define as big they'll say Oh, you're getting fat and they'll they'll do it in front of people or like all your neighbors and aunties and like yeah. everyone on the street will say oh you've gained a lot of weight what are you doing to lose it or something oh are you afraid you're not going to find a husband if you gain so much weight and they'll say things like that which creates insecurities and what happens is that that same girl will now grow up she'll get married have her own kids and when she has her kids she's going to say to her kids oh don't do that you're going to gain you're you're gaining weight no one's going to want to marry you and then she's putting that same thing in that child. And then until yeah. that child or the, the, that lineage, someone stops and says, no, I'm not going to say that to my child because that's wrong. Um, it will carry on. And that I've seen so much when it comes to skin color. Like I had uncles and aunties that would tell me, don't play out in the sun because you're going to turn, turn dark and you don't want to turn dark, do you? So I was like, why? Who cares? And I see it in some of my, some of my own family members, um, and I hope they're not watching this, otherwise I'm going to get beaten up. But like, you know, they, they, they strictly, like when they go out in the sun, they, they, they will wear long sleeve clothes, they'll put out sunscreen and everything to make sure that they don't tan. And I'm like, look, this is something that's being passed on. And I've seen it on a small scale where it's just simple insecurities and making your child like less confident in themselves, which is bad enough because it, it disadvantages them in their day-to-day -day lives with their relationships with other children, with teachers, with, you know, their future employer. They won't be able to stand up for themselves, etc., etc. But it can have major implications in which children yeah. aren't like have such bad body issues or like um, what, what do they call them? Actual self-esteem issues, but to an extreme level where they have anxiety attacks when they have acne breaks yeah. out, breakouts or or much worse and that's something to something to be very terrified of because i feel like that i wonder to myself does the original perpetrator of this action have a share of the sin of the misery that they've caused to the whole lineage that mm. that one action that one phrase or statement has been passed down to like, how, like, does the great-great-grandmother, for example, bear the sins of the great-great-grandchild who is suffering from, you know, anxiety on her weight or whatever because of that great-grandmother saying that thing to her daughter? You know, so I, I wonder these things and I'm like, look, if we want to nurture yeah. healthy relationships, we have to be conscious parents and be conscious of, okay, everything that I'm going to say or do to my child will, ha will affect my child. So I have to make conscious decisions to do what's best. Yeah. And like me, for example, I get angry at my children sometimes. Sometimes I'm super stressed with work and my alimia and all of this. And I'll snap at them when they say something simple to me. But I will always make that effort where I will go back to them. I'll give them a hug, give them a sweet or a chocolate or something. 
and I'll say, I'm really sorry, Baba gets angry sometimes, so I'm just really stressed out. So that my children understand, okay, look, it's a very human reaction. He didn't mean to, to get angry and stuff. So I think with generational trauma, I feel like I'm not a psychologist. I don't have the answers on like, how do you avoid it? How do you fix it? How do we make sure it never happens? Ultimately, you're, we, we are all the products of our experiences and what we, what we believe. And that will affect how our children grow up. But the key thing here, I believe, is to make a conscious effort to recognize the negative stuff within us and to make a conscious effort to not pass that on. I feel like that much, I don't need to be a psychologist to tell people. That's uh, a really good way of describing it, that you don't, recognizing what is a flaw within yourself, uh, you don't need to be told that. It requires a lot of self-awareness, requires a lot of deep thought, deep thinking, about your actions, about your thinking patterns, uh, about the way that you're treating people. Uh, and it should then become obvious to you that uh, there is a flaw here. And now the next step is maybe finding somebody who can help you to fix those flaws. Um, whatever, whatever, whatever that may be, in whatever form that is, whether that's therapy, whether that's taking a mentor, whether that's um, even your own your own discipline so maybe it requires for you to just go on your own journey and and discipline yourself uh, the thing that's so unfortunate is that a lot of people just don't take that first step of becoming self-aware and so they never even get to the point of realizing that they might be passing things over to their children uh that are gonna that are gonna uh, disadvantage them like you mentioned disadvantage them in their life and that's gonna keep getting passed down and that's that's something that it's, it's very unfortunate that you, you don't even take time out to observe yourself. You don't even take time out to, to become so self-aware and to start working on yourself. And I was invited onto uh, the Mind Heist podcast, shout out to them, just um, not too long ago. And they asked me uh, this question of, you know, you've had so many guests on your podcast, what have you learned? And the first thing that came to my mind was that pretty much everybody that I have spoken to has quite a good level of self-awareness, or even if they... Um, uh, to, the, to the extent that even if they haven't like maybe taken that self-awareness to the next step which is to maybe fix their flaws they know that they have certain flaws that they want to fix and so a lot of the fathers that I have interviewed I, I'm, I'm very happy with the fact that many of them understand that uh, they have these problems within themselves and they need to fix that up so that they can be better for their children and so it's kind of like as a parent you automatically the first thing you think about is how can i uh how can i be the best kind of a uh, parent basically how can i do this parenting thing the best right and when you think about doing a parenting thing the best is that you start like like we're meant to be speaking about is books you start picking up these books and uh reading them and understanding <clears throat> what are the methods and the tricks and the hacks uh of of parenting but you forget the first step which is how do I fix myself first? How do I actually myself become a good person? How do I myself get rid of my own flaws? How do I myself, uh, uh, you know, seek knowledge? How do I myself uh, uh, kind of really uh, uh, become self-aware and focus on myself and, and fix myself up so that I can then take those parenting tips and tricks and implement them properly? Because you could have all that knowledge about parenting, but if you yourself, inside of yourself, there's all of this mess going on inside, how are you going to be able to translate all of those things properly 
into good parenting tactics. And uh, one thing that you mentioned that was uh, quite interesting was that even if you, you, you were basically saying that even if I'm flawed and there's sometimes when I lash out against my children maybe I, I i don't behave in the best way when i'm trying to get things done and maybe i get angry at them or i shout at them and i shouldn't do that but i take a minute to go ahead and try to repair that and in that book that i mentioned to you before um the kind of you wish your parents would have read this or whatever it was called right um i think the author is philippa perry i don't know why that name is coming to my mind but philippa perry it must be that must be the author okay so you can try and find the book but in that book she basically says this exact thing that you said that any situation is repairable okay um so because what she what she's basically saying is that a lot of the times uh, she recognizes that parents will be reading this book and feeling like, rah, I'm such a bad parent. I didn't do these things that I should have done, or I'm not doing these things right now that you're advising me to do in this parenting book. Therefore, I've messed up my child and therefore I can't do anything now. And I'm just a terrible parent and my, my child's going to be disadvantaged for the whole life. And she recognizes this. She, she knows that parents come with this kind of psychology when they read these articles or they read these books. And she basically says, every situation is repairable as long as you, you, you recognize that you've done something wrong and you go ahead and you start to repair that. So there's no kind of effect that is going to, well, she says, there's no effect that is going to be lifelong as long as you uh, begin to repair it. And maybe she means that it can't be 100% fixed, but you could 90% fix it. You could 80% fix it. You could 70% fix it. And it's better than uh, uh, doing 0% fixing, right? And and she says this thing of apologizing, right? You've you done something wrong to your child. Your child, like our children are quite young. They're less than four or five years old. But, you know, if we can't apologize to our young children, how are we going to expect ourselves to apologize when our children get older and they have their own ways of thinking and we've done them wrong? And, uh, and and we need to apologize. And if we can't do do it to when, when our babies are small, it might seem counterintuitive. Oh, this is a baby. What do they know? Why do I need to say sorry to them? But you are modeling this behavior now that when something goes wrong, you go back to that person and you do your best to fix it. You apologize to them. You explain why you did things wrong and you do your best not to do that thing again. And your, your child from that age is going to learn understanding that, okay, in the future, if I mess up, this is what I should be doing to try and repair that relationship. And that's what in that book is what she's saying is that's what your children want from you for you to go back to them and, and, and say that you're sorry and to basically fix that relationship again that relationship had a slight has a slight crack in it now because you did something that you shouldn't have done as the parent and you as a parent you're just assuming that your child is just going to move on because children are actually like that you know children are so resilient they just forget that my, my parents just shouted at me and my parent had a go at me or my parent hit me and a few minutes later they're playing with you but you know, one person told me this, his uh, name is Ricky Nuttall. You should definitely look him up. He's a firefighter uh, or ex-firefighter. And he was uh, one of the main firefighters as part of the response to the Grenfell Tower uh, disaster. And uh, since since then, he's, take, he's quit from firefighting because of the mental toll that I had on him. But now he's become sort of a mental health advocate. And I was at a show, uh, Freshly, I'm doing lots of shout outs today. So Freshly Grounded, they had their live show and Ricky Notto was there. And he said an amazing story that relates back to this point. He, he, he gave his story about how after the whole Grenfell stuff, he had, 
you know, mentally he was very, very defeated. And so there was a lot of anger coming out of him in situations that he didn't want to be angry. Um, and there was one situation where his, uh, he went to a restaurant with his son. His son's about three years old and his son just wasn't eating his food. And that's obviously normal for children to do that, not eat their food. But because he was so worked up inside, he got so angry at the fact that he shoved the food in his uh, child's mouth and his child started crying. And then when he started crying, he started hitting him for crying. And I, I can see where all of that is coming from. Like somebody might see this, oh my gosh, that's a terrible parent. I can actually see the buildup of that. You know, what, before this whole situation, there would have been a buildup of uh, him being overwhelmed with obviously the whole firefighting stuff, but also just being a parent and all the stuff that comes along with. And there's this one trigger that came and just, it made him, it made him go loose, like a loose cannon. And it all came out and he regretted it. And uh, I messaged him after the show and I told him on Instagram, I said that that was so powerful that you were so honest with your story because I can totally relate to that. And I asked him, I said like, I said to him, I don't want to get to a situation where I do, I am so, I'm always so angry to my child, but I just assume that they're going to be okay with it because my son is always okay with it. When I get angry at him, I, I, I just kind of change the conversation and I start playing with him and he forgets about it. It's like as if he just accepts my apology, you know? And Ricky was basically saying that don't take for granted that type of behavior from children. Don't take for granted that they're just going to automatically just accept your apology. Like in this case, my apology wasn't verbal. It was like, it was kind of like, just change your topic, change the situation. And, and my child recognizes that as an apology because they can recognize that I'm trying to now bring him back into me in, in, a, in a good way. But that's only going to last for so long. Your child is going to get to a stage eventually where uh, the, the, they're going to lose your trust. You're going to, you're going to, you're going to do so much harm to them that they're not even going to accept the apology when the real apology comes from you. So combining all of this together, I know I'm going on for a while, but combining the uh, advice from the book that I mentioned of everything is, anything can be repairable, even if it's not hundred percent and combining the fact that don't take advantage of your children being uh, so uh, always accepting your your apologies that one should definitely uh, uh, do their best to repair things as quickly as possible and then to do their best to work on themselves uh, so they don't act out that like, behavior again. everything you say that's, that's um, I think on that like I've seen I've seen family situations where that exact same thing happened where you know the dad like would wrong the children, but he wouldn't apologize. He would, he would be very stubborn on that. And I've, and I've seen this with both boys and girls. So I've seen the massive effect it had 15 years later, 16 years later, 18 years later for, for, you know, in different families across like, you know, cause it's, it's, it's more, I don't I don't like saying it, but it is kind of more normal for this to be seen amongst fathers than it is amongst mothers, like this kind of behavior. Um, and I've seen the effects of these children growing up. And now what happens is you've got daughters that, you know, have real, you know, issues when it comes to dealing with men, either they in um, amongst non-Muslims, they become too, uh, too attention driven, like any, they, they seek the attention of men to account for the lack of attention they got from their father. Um, or they absolutely, you know, um, 
are the complete opposite, where they absolutely despise men. And I've seen it with sons who have, uh, in an effort, because of how much they hate their father, they've tried to become everything their father what, uh, was. So they've gone to the complete opposite end. And if that means, yeah. you know, uh, yeah. even sometimes going to the extent where they become, uh, you know, gay or whatever, to, to, to rebel against that. Um, and, and it's caused issues. I've seen it in Muslim families where there's complete family fractures, where a family is together, but no one can stand each other because the grown up children have real issues with, with, uh, their father and their father's not accounting for them. So I completely echo that. And I think it goes back to that self-respect, uh, self in, uh, self-inspection kind of, uh, mentality being uh, introspective and thinking about yourself which is why you know in the Islamic tradition um, there's the whole tasawwuf the skia uh, section where you've got so much has been written on by scholars on purifying the heart and the soul because it, ultimately it's this this organ the spiritual organ that will determine our fate and I can't show it right now but my my biggest section in my library is the spiritual section for that exact reason, because it's just so important that when you predicate your getting into Jannah upon your heart, everything becomes so much clearer and it becomes more scary because, you know, like how you spoke about saying that we need to become better and, you know, get rid of our flaws for our children. I, I don't necessarily look at it that way. I look at it this way. I say, I want to get to Jannah. I want to succeed in this life. That's my only goal. That's the one thing that I'm banking on. That's where all my efforts are being driven. I need to get to Jannah and earn Allah's pleasure um, and His mercy. How do I do that? I need to fulfill the rights and responsibilities given to me and, uh, you know, do my best to model the Prophet ﷺ. Okay, next step from that is, okay, Allah has given me children. Now they are a responsibility to me and it's my responsibility to raise them to... To, to be the best Muslims that they can possibly be and they're prepared to go out into the world by themselves and do their thing that if I was to die tomorrow or if I they were to be taken to a foreign country for whatever reason they could they would be all right their deen their dunya they would be okay that's my job I feel and it all harks back to I need to get to Jannah so I relate everything I do back to that and that motivates me to get rid of my own issues, my own personal issues, because everyone has baggage. And I said this in the status that I wrote, everyone has baggage. It's not possible to live a perf perfect life because this dunya is um, a test and Jannah is where perfection is. So you are going to have your baggage, but it's important for you to recognize that. And how do you recognize that? Like you said, they can get help from people. They can go to counselors, therapists, um, imams in some cases. I strongly advise people that do go to imams for this kind of advice that those imams are qualified as either counselors or, or um, you know, people in that field that they're good at that yeah. sort of thing. Um, but the other thing is that there's so much scholarly literature written on this and heartwarming reminders and stuff that people can use. And I, I read a lot about yeah. this, like, you know, what can I do to purify my heart? Um, I looked into a lot of this stuff. Uh, because I always felt that I wasn't good enough. I'm not good enough for my children. I'm not good enough for my family. I'm not good enough for my parents. I need to be better. So I use that to push myself. Obviously, going to an extreme length, that can become an unhealthy obsession, which can um, inadvertently hurt the very people that you want to help. But there is a middle ground where you, you know the issues you have, 
and you constantly work on them and you don't hide behind the fact that um, you, you don't hide the fact that you're working on them. Like me and my wife will have arguments. Sometimes those arguments get bad. Sometimes like, you know, there's naturally like, you know, a lot of shouting and stuff like that. It, it, it happens. But the key thing is that afterwards yeah. I will say to her, like, you know, if it's my fault and the argument started because say, I don't know, I, uh, I didn't um, do something very important in the house. I didn't, um, you know, I didn't uh, fix something or whatever. I will go to her and we'll, after everything's cooled down, we'll sit down. Yeah. We'll have an honest conversation and say, let's get to the root of the problem. Once we've identified the root of the problem, whether it's with me or with her, then we'll be like, okay, what are we going to do about it? And then once we've said that yeah. we're going to do something, we're going to be yeah, reasonable yeah. about it. Like say, for example, there's a couple and one of them has anger issues because of whatever reason, the reason they were, the way they were brought up, everyone in their family yeah. has anger issues. Those two people need to talk about it and they need to recognize those anger issues are a real yeah. thing. Both partners need to recognize that. And if they can recognize that, they can make a plan of action, yeah. whether that's getting a therapist, whether that's working on it. Now, the problem is not going to be solved in two days. It's not like those anger issues aren't going to surface again. But what happens is by recognizing it over the course of whatever time, six months, two years, five years, ten years, you're consciously now making an effort to combat that through whatever means. And what that means is over a period of time, you will get better and you will minimize those issues. And I think that sets a very good example to children because they will consciously see their parents working on their flaws and your children will grow up with their own flaws and their own issues. That is natural. Um, but this mindset will teach them that they need to work on those flaws and how they can do that is whether through books or going, getting help or whatever but it gives them the right mindset for it. SubhanAllah, I couldn't have said it better myself, Khidr. So we're coming towards the end of our time together. Um, and I want to just go back to the point of books. And you mentioned that your biggest collection is the spiritual section. And since we are talking about fixing ourselves up why don't you tell us uh, maybe one or two books that come to mind right now that people should get or parents should get when it comes to well i, I wish i had prepared for this better because i when it comes to like nuts. suggesting one or two books like i i completely suck at that so um <laughs> okay I'll, I'll, I'll uh, preface that preface that by saying that uh, you can make a new reel about all of your Tezkia books uh, after the podcast, and then we can we can link the podcast to that, you know, so you can have some time to think about it, and we'll we'll we'll, we'll share your reel, you know. I know you like to make those top five books about this and that, so um, yeah. So so don't worry, you'll get a chance to okay. Uh, go a few come to mind. But for now, so for those people that don't mind? like dense books. Um, don't, they don't like something that's too heavy to read loads of paragraphs and loads of words. Yeah. There is, if you mind, if I just go grab it right now. <laughs> go ahead. Look right on cue. My camera died again. Look at Heather sitting in his library. Right. I've picked up four. Uh, hopefully these four are beneficial so so the first book i'd say is this one it's called heart's oh, wow. turn um 
And really, this isn't about self-rectification. It's a basically basically um, uh, Michael Sugic, um, who's a, who's a convert to Islam, wrote compiled loads of books regarding um, tales of people that have reformed themselves that were like the worst of people. They were murderers, they were thieves, they were drunkards, they were fornicators, yet they became the best of people. And it narrates their stories and there's a lot to learn in that. And I feel mankind in general, humans love stories. That's why the Quran is filled with them because we draw lessons from them. And sometimes the, uh, the wisdom within them is infinite. So this is a, this is a great book. So it's called Heart Turn, Heart's Turn by Michael Sugic. Um, it's got, uh, you know, it's got raving reviews by Sheikh Abdul Hakim Murad, Cat uh, Stevens, also known as Yusuf Islam, Sami Yusuf, the Nasheed artist, Dr. Umar Farooq Abdullah, um, and others. The next book I'd say is this short version, um, which is an adaptation of uh, Al-Ghazali's Ihya Ulumuddin, which is a great book. Honestly, this is published into readable language by Turath Publishing. Um, you know, again, you've got a review at the back by Sheikh Abdul Hakim Murad, who says it's a great work. Um, still, it's a bit wordy, though. So for those of you that don't like lots of words, um, probably not for you. But it's Imam al-Ghazali's own condensed version of Ihya al-Ulumuddin, which is a very big work. But you can read that as well if you want the full thing. Now, the, le the less dense work that I would recommend um, is, okay. is this one. It's called Spiritual Medicine. Yeah, so it's it's a great book, like where you've essentially uh, yeah. got, you know, that, yeah. uh, an illness of the heart here. You've got fear of poverty, nice diagrams, you know, signs and symptoms, treatments and exceptions and stuff like that, where, you know, and then you've got more detail and everything's in nice little tables and stuff. So for certain people, like, you know, if you have an issue and that might be greed or jealousy, you'll just skip to that section and everything's very readable. So I, I definitely recommend this one. Um, yeah. And I find that the um, because of how how it's set out, uh, it could be a very good resource for like uh, doing like halakat or doing kind of circles basically with with youth or other people um, because you kind of have like a set syllabus to go through. Okay, today we're going to go through anger, and then it's kind of table it's formatted. Okay, what what's the definition of it? Uh, where do we find uh, the advice for it in the Quran and Sunnah? I completely and agree. The next one, next and the one. last one that I that I, uh, I, th I think it's a good one. Advise people towards is um, Imam Al Ghazali again, who's who's quite good at when he when it comes to like the sawaf and dazkir and heart rectification stuff. His uh, letter to his disciple, or in this case, it's called O Son, um, but essentially it was a letter to of advice to his student mm. about you know being God conscious, seeking knowledge. Um, not being stagnant and not letting yourself uh, go to waste mm. and fixing your issues. Um, so yeah, those are the four books that I would say very quickly off the top of my head. If you ask me in Arabic, I could suggest you like a bunch more. Some of them are multi-volumes okay. though, so uh, that's that's a different thing. But yeah, I definitely recommend these. <laughs> MashaAllah, JazakAllah khair for that, I appreciate it. Um, okay, I think that's the end of it. Uh, I'm just going to check. I don't think we have any questions. I mean, the question we do have questions, but the questions we have aren't very, very relevant. Uh, they're more so to do with things like advice on Hivth and uh, advice on the day of Arafah and um, building our Iman. I think you've come to the wrong live. Okay, this live is... Uh, 
uh, two dads who love books. All right. I'm sure. I'm sure uh, Khidr, mashallah, is very well studied and could answer all those questions for you. Um, but uh, maybe not today. So, with that being said, Khidr, Jazakallah Khair for coming on. I really do appreciate it. And um, uh, inshallah, whenever there's another opportunity, we'll be bringing you on again. Wa alaykum salam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.